Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He causes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Some years ago when our kids were small in elementary school, there was a custodian in the school that I'd run into every couple weeks when I, would, when I was there. And he always began every conversation with me the same way. It went like this. Brother, how is it with your soul? He didn't mean the part of me that would leave my body when I died. He didn't mean some ill-defined, ethereal thing floating out. He meant the part of me that was underneath the rest of me. The part that holds all of the pieces together. The part that God knew before he formed my body. He meant the part of me that exists before and beyond everything I've done. He meant the part of me that still longs for God, that sits in services like this and hungers for something more that I can't always put words to, the part that intuits when something is wrong. It struck me as odd that a custodian would ask me that. No one else did, nor did I ask anyone. But here we were standing in the middle of a hall every couple weeks talking about my soul. So I've come to have that conversation with you. I hope you're okay with it. How is it with your soul? What are two words, adjectives, you would use right now to describe the condition of your soul. It's important to me because I think we're losing it individually, collectively, or even as a church. I don't mean that we're misplacing it. I mean we're giving it away to too many things, or something is carrying it off. When Jesus spoke about gaining the world and losing your soul, he didn't mean that your soul would go to hell. That's, read the text. He meant you would give it to something else in pursuit of the whole world. He meant something in this world will carry it off. There are states, six, eight of them, that have a recurring phenomenon called a sinkhole. It's where everything on the surface suddenly just implodes. Suddenly, I say, but never spontaneously. Geologists tell us that sinkholes are the result of underground rivers or streams that are just moving all of the time relentlessly carrying 
sediment away and leaving a large, ever-growing cavity underneath the surface. And then suddenly one day when what is underneath can no longer sustain what is on the surface, the entire surface just implodes. Sometimes only three feet, but on some occasions, 150 feet. The devastating is in the millions. Well, I wonder if a similar thing is not happening to our souls. I don't think we're misplacing them. I think there are streams underneath the surface that are little by little carrying things away, creating a cavity. And when the implosion happens, sometimes it's a moral failure, but just as often we leave relationships or we leave religion or we quit our jobs. 43 million people just up and quit in about 18 months. Most of them didn't retire. They just quit. They were done. What was happening in them could not sustain what was happening on top of their lives. And it just went. One of those streams is speed. Everything is faster today. And speed is busy, hurried, controlling, anxious, quantity over quality. Speed is now. Hurry up. We saw pictures of people that passed away this last year. Some of the families I've walked with and I have felt for them. Indeed, I have felt myself that when someone passes today, I know everything can't stop, but you want something to, and it doesn't. It's like everybody just stops for a moment. They tip their hat to the side of the road, and then they just get right on with it. And they kind of, I was reading 100, 150 years ago when someone lost their spouse, their friends came around them and they, they insulated them for three years before they went out. Now it's two weeks. It might be two days, grievance. And then you're back. Speed. Information. We're getting news and opinions from more sources of different biases all the time. We wake up in the morning and we are already on one side of an argument or another, and it is always an argument. And so without ever trying to be pulled into the current, the polarization, we are pulled into the current and we get defensive and then angry. We have conversations with ourselves in a room we have arguments with nobody else there and we always win, but we're having arguments with ourselves. Uncertainty. The information is changing all the time and you have to make decisions and you never know where it's going to land. So you can't predict how things are going to go. Every one of you, whatever your occupation, have said it at least once in the last few months. Nobody knows what's going to happen here. Everything about my job 
is changing. And I just think this is a slow erosion of our, what Paul used to call the inner man. I don't think we've misplaced it. I think it's being carried away with a thousand little distractions. And the symptoms for this is fatigue or exhaustion, frustration, anxiety, maybe resentment. It's worry or it's fear, boredom or indifference. There are dozens of symptoms for that cavity in us that's slowly eroding away. When I hear the psalmist, I wonder if what we're really craving right now is green pastures and still waters. Green pastures means a place of plenty. There's margin, there's abundance, there's satisfaction here. And still waters is quietness, it's pause, it's peace, it's an inner confidence. And I wonder when we chase purchase after purchase, relationship after relationship, when we throw ourselves recklessly into every pursuit, we overspend, overcommit, overconsume. I wonder if we are really in search of green pastures, but we don't have language for that. And when we look to the elections, the political scene to give us, well, the new savior now for the next two to four years, I wonder if that restlessness, that projection of all of our hopes onto some political office is really the sole longing for stillness Calm waters, everything is churning. I wonder if underneath all of that is a thirst. I wonder if we're thirsty and then we're bored. We're thirsty and then we're frustrated or anxious or distracted, but we're thirsty. There are many scenes in the Bible, most of them serendipitous, where Jesus or God runs into somebody. Each one tells us something about God we did not know, something more about ourselves we did not know. One of those serendipitous run-ins is between Jesus and a woman at the well. Have you heard this story? Hey, you guys, have you heard this story? Oh, then I won't tell it. I'll hurry it. I'll lift the parts out that speak to what we're talking. Is that all right? There are two ways to get from Jerusalem to Galilee. The more circuitous route is to go east through Jericho, follow the Jordan River north, and then cut back west before you go into Galilee where Jesus was going. 
The shorter, faster route was a straight line from Jerusalem up into Galilee, but if you took that route, you had to go through Samaria, and nobody did that. The Jews in Jerusalem had a long-standing animosity with the Samaritans. It wasn't just an ethnic conflict. This was hundreds of years old. They hated each other. The Jews burned the temple that the Samaritans built, and so the Samaritans snuck into the temple in Jerusalem at midnight and scattered dead bones all over the floor, rendering it unclean. No one could use it. It wasn't just ethnic differences. It was a storied animosity, so no thinking Jew ever took the straight path. Everyone went east and then up, but John says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Only he didn't. Only he did. There in Samaria, sitting, he found a well. And John says, tired from the journey, he sat down by a well, sola cum solo, alone with the alone. And a woman came about noon looking for water. She didn't know him, but he knew her. And that she was coming at noon was the first sign something was wrong. The women in that day always came at sunrise because they needed the water for cooking or for chores. And when they came, they always came alone. But that she came at high noon and that she came alone was an indication that something was wrong, that something would come up in their conversation. Jesus asked, would you give me a drink? She says, neither yes nor no. She just says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How is it that you ask me for a drink? Typical of Jesus, he never answers the question. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked for a drink, well, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Here's the first sign in the conversation now that there are two kinds of water. There's the water you came looking for and then there's living water. And if you only knew what to ask for, you would ask for living water. But you don't know what to ask for. The woman says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He dug this well a couple thousand years ago. There is no stream or river in the area what makes you think you can find this living water? 
Besides, the water we have is worked for years. Jesus says, only it hasn't. Because the water you have, when you drink it, you will always be thirsty. You will keep coming back. But the water that I offer you will become in you a well of water, bubbling up to eternal life. He doesn't mean heaven. He means the good life. The water that I put inside of you will just come from inside of you and it will go out and affect every part of your life. It will lead to the good life. Finally, she says, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back. Then Jesus changes the subject, only he doesn't. He says, go call your husband and then come back. Pause for a moment if you think you know this story and consider the woman's options. She is a Samaritan woman in the territory that is all her own. Her private space has just been invaded by a Jewish man whom she does not know. The wells in those days are famous for men meeting women. She does not know his intentions. The safe thing to do here is for her to defer and say, I'll go uh, bring my husband and then disappear and never come back. She doesn't do this. She stays in the conversation. She admits something about herself that was a mark against her in that day. She says, I have no husband. Jesus says twice, now you're telling the truth. In fact, you've been married five times and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Now we have to pause again, we evangelicals who like to make sermons out of somebody else's altar. And we have to defend the woman. It was against the law in those days for a woman to divorce her husband for any reason. Only men could divorce their wives. So whatever was behind the five failed marriages, it was not because she abandoned the marriage. It was because the marriage abandoned her. And we don't know why the five marriages had failed, but it doesn't have to be sexual immorality. That might tell us more about us than it does about her. On the day she was alive, there were five reasons a person could be stoned and adultery was one of them. So if it was, as some of you suggest, that this was sexual immorality, that she was unfaithful to her husband's, would she not have now at least been stoned? The predominant interpreter of Jewish law in that day was Hillel, who taught that men could 
divorced their wives for a number of reasons. One of them was if she spoke badly about her husband's family, her in-laws, in public. I'm just saying. If she spoiled the food, I'm not making it up, if she raised her voice loud enough for the neighbors to hear it, bringing shame to his reputation, he could abandon her. The most common reason, though, was that she was not able to have children. We don't know why the woman was married five times but might I suggest, before you add insult to injury and make this some immoral thing, maybe it was nothing she did at all. Maybe it was something done to her. And maybe the reason she was living with a man who was not her husband is because he wouldn't marry her. He didn't have to. And there really wasn't a social alternative in that day for a woman who was suddenly single. There was no social network. There was no government welfare. It was usually either marry someone else or live with them or use prostitution. It's painful when someone has things done to them. And religious people, well, that's enough. But it is right here where Jesus puts his finger on the center of the woman's thirst. We don't know what the thirst was. We don't have enough information. Was she really at the end of the day looking for security? Some would say, no, intimacy. Well, maybe, but was it belonging? Was she just looking for union with someone? And because life went the way that it went for her, she went from one relationship to the next. But when Jesus said, go call your husband, he was putting his finger on the center of her thirst. And when she said, I have no husband, she was for the first time touching it herself. The woman changes the subject. She said, well, I can see you're a prophet. Uh, let's talk about worship. <laughs> a thousand times when God has put his finger on the thirst of my soul, I run to one of my nearest convictions to something I can control. Let's change the subject, I say. Let me vent. 
the conflict between Jews and Samaritans was historic. The Samaritans worshipped on a mountain right behind the woman, Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. The woman said, our fathers taught us to worship in Gerizim. You Jews say that you have to worship God in Jerusalem. Which is it? Is it Gerizim or is it Jerusalem? Jesus says, in effect, neither. The time is coming. In fact, the time is here when those who worship God will worship him not just in place, but in spirit. For God himself is spirit. You cannot touch what is spirit by just mimicking words, by going through rituals, by saying liturgies you're supposed to say. God is a spirit. You can only touch him from your spirit. And so those who worship God must worship him there in spirit and in truth. There's a pause. She says, well, the Messiah is coming, and when the Messiah comes, then he will explain all of this to us. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. I am what you have been thirsting for. There's a 13th century hymn called The Day of Wrath written by Thomas of Chilano, and in that that hymn, there's a phrase I ran into six months ago when I was running north, tired and anxious and frustrated and bored and indifferent, just weary in soul. I ran into the phrase, and the phrase says, Querens me sedisti lasis. I didn't know what it meant. I had to Google it. And when I did, I found out it means in search of me, you sat down weary. I lost it. I was looking for every other thing somebody does when they're tired. And it never works. It's why you come back from vacations, even sabbaticals, exhausted. It's why there's something in you that is always restless. That day he touched it. It is like he'd been there the whole time in search of me. You sat down weary. I think there is a thirst in a lot of people this morning here. I think there's a water you come looking for and there's a water that will actually satisfy you. And the longer you chase the things you're looking for, they will never be enough and you know it. Whatever it is you can't get enough of, whatever it is other people have and you want more of, whatever it is that you think about, what you turn to when your life is getting really shaky, 
whatever that is, whether you're religious or not, that is your well. That's where you go. And it works until it doesn't. If your well is money, then you will never have enough. You will always have a nagging sense that as your income grows, so does your lifestyle. And in that pressure, you will need more and you will never have enough. If your well is beauty or sexuality or appearance, you will always feel ugly. There will always be something about you you would change that makes you unacceptable and when you age and you will and your appearance changes because it does, you will die a million deaths before somebody actually buries you. And if your well is power, you will always reach out for more power because you're trying to numb that fear that is deep in your soul. Only you can't. If your well is affirmation, people saying good things about you, compliments, approval, you will never get enough. You will turn every conversation you were in to a performance and you will never enter that conversation for you will always leave it wondering what we were thinking of you and if your well is your intellect or being seen as smart, you will always feel dumb. You will feel like a fraud, like an imposter and you will fear being found out. The trouble with these idols, said David Foster Wallace, is not that they're evil. It's that they're unconscious. They're like default settings. Everyone who has ever pursued these things knows that they never have enough. And my fear for some of us in the room right now is not that you won't get these things. It's that you will get these things. And having spent your entire life pursuing these things, discover in the end it was never enough. You keep going back to the same old well. Jesus said, he who drinks the water I give him, it becomes for them a well of water from inside. When we pursue Christ instead of just the benefits of Christ, it is the most satisfying pursuit of our lives. But it begins by, I think, by picking up the word of God, sitting down and letting the word of God talk to us. You see, 
we have this evangelical privilege that when we pick up the word, we, we think about it, or I do, like a preacher, or I think about it like a scholar. I think about it like a Christian, and that is the last thing we must do. When you pick up the word of God and read the stories, put yourself under the word, not over it. You're not the angel on the road going nowhere. No, no, you are Hagar, a woman who has been abandoned and abused by people who are supposed to take care of her. This is not your fault. The last thing you do is sit there and shout verses at it. You sit there and wait until God finds you. Then you say, I have seen the one who sees me. You're not the prophet. You're Naaman, the leper. Yes, you. Society has cast you off and forgotten about you. You should defend yourself, but you can't. Nobody's listening to you anymore. So rather than just project your anger onto society, why don't you sit there until you hear God's voice say to you, go wash in the pool. You are not Mary and Martha mourning the dead. You're Lazarus. You are the dead. And you're not, you're not Jesus. You're the man by the pool, crippled for 38 years, something you didn't do. And every time you go to help yourself, somebody else gets lucky. They get in first. And you think, you really think that this is how your life is going to end. And then one day, a man you've never met approaches you and says, do you want to be well? And he doesn't mean healed. He means whole. Do you want to be whole? Do you want to be like you were? You see, you cannot make this happen. You cannot force it. It's not three steps into poem. It's you in a room Sola cum soli, alone with the alone, waiting for him to speak to you. And you hear it. So how do we, how do we end? I worried about this because um, we all like messages that, well, they they lie down at the end of the day and, and this one just wouldn't do that for me. I have a feeling if you fix this by noon today, you've missed the entire point. If you fix it by the end of the day, you've still missed the point. This is more about a pursuit than it is a conquest. I hope that's what you've heard.